it can get pretty loud out there. There can be an, a lot of noise and distraction and things pulling us uh, towards things that matter, for sure, but may not be the things most needful in our lives. And so it makes a difference to have these moments where we can come together like we're doing here today and right now to think deeply about who we are and whose we are and the difference that that makes in the way we go through the, the rush and the pace of life. Uh, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks here at Christ Church about uh, a, the meaning of Christmas and using the lens of this famous Christmas carol, O Holy Night, the song that you heard uh, playing on the radio there. And uh, we've been taking just a phrase at a time from some of the famous lyrics of that song and using them as a lens to unpack some of the critical truths that meet us in the Christmas season. Today we're going to talk about the idea that we can hear the angels' voices. And I want to take you back to the original story this morning and uh, invite you, if you have a copy of your own Bible, to open up in the Bible to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from verse 7 and following uh, this familiar story, or maybe for some of us, a story we're hearing uh, for the first time. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, nearby Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. I think if you were to encounter the full glory and presence of God, it would, it would be a soul-shaking experience, and this is what's going on for these guys. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. And the word that was used in those days for Messiah very often was the word Christ. He is the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger of all things. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, and a host uh, is an army. Like a, these are powerful, amazing creatures that are suddenly uh, making themselves visible. Uh, and the great company of the host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the word heaven literally means the invisible place, the invisible dimension. When they had gone into the invisible dimension, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. 
the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm not sure that, um, that you will necessarily recognize or remember the name Bob Carey, but I want to bring him to mind today as a helpful start to a conversation about what I've just read. Uh, Bob Carey um, was a public figure um, in the midst of a time when Americans were just starting to develop a, a really uh, robust cynicism and suspicion about the character of people in public life. Uh, where there had been enough scandals and enough uh, revelations about the behavior of people in business and politics and the celebrity world in general that, that people were dubious about major public figures. But Bob Carey was a person who inspired an unusual amount of confidence and, and interest. Carey grew up in the state of Nebraska, Lincoln to be particular. He went to public high school. He attended a state school there. And then he uh, went to Vietnam. And uh, while in Vietnam, he served with the Navy SEALs. He became a leader of SEAL Team One. And in one particularly uh, devastating conflict, uh, Kerry sustained dramatic injuries to his body, but nonetheless managed to lead his team through the mission and to safety. And for that particular experience, he suffered ravaging injuries that disabled him uh, in some respects for the rest of his life, some tremendous scars from that, but was also awarded our nation's highest medal for heroism, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Kerry went on from there to a life in business. He was a successful businessman back in Nebraska. He then took his experience and, and ran for public office. He became the governor of the state of Nebraska, uh, he then went on to become the United States Senator from the state, and in the early 90s, decided to seek the office of President of these United States, and, uh, and ultimately was not successful, as our nation chose a gentleman by the name of William Jefferson Clinton instead. Kerry um, made the decision to, to withdraw from the presidential contest and had to decide who he would call and tell about this decision first. And what's fascinating is that he did not choose to go first to the media. He did not go first to other politicians. He did not go first to a variety of potential important people he could have chosen. He, one of the first people that he contacted was a young woman by the name of Barbara Burback. And I happen to know this story because Barbara was a close friend of our families. Several years before, Barbara was riding in a taxi cab in Manhattan when the taxi cab driver uh, lost control of the vehicle and uh, slammed into some poles along uh, the side of one of the major avenues in New York City. And the accident rendered Barbara permanently brain damaged and physically broken. Uh, it was a devastating, devastating injury. Barbara had been... Um, had just graduated from Yale Law School, right towards the top of her class. She had just gotten a job at maybe the most prestigious law firm in the world. She was a remarkable talent. And now she was utterly devastated in a single instant by this accident. 
Uh, over the years before, Barbara had also distinguished herself as just one of those great people in society. She'd worked thousands of hours uh, to shepherd impoverished kids and other people to try and protect folks against the wolves of this life using her, uh, her legal training and her, her other education. She volunteered remarkable amounts of time for this. And, and the accident took so much from her, but the one thing it just couldn't ever take away was her shepherd's heart. Barbara had a heart for people that, that the accident did not remove. And, and uh, being a person of persevering Christian faith and compassion, even despite her injury, she just kept pressing against those disabilities to try and bring value to this world in one way or another. And she ultimately succeeded in leading a campaign for what became known as Barbara's Law that, that, that mandated seatbelts in taxi cabs. Uh, in, in the state of Nebraska, and eventually that began to spread to other parts of the world. She ended up, her life ended up protecting countless other people from death or serious injury. Um, and despite all of the scars on her body, she just kept living with the heart of a shepherd. So much so that when he had very important news to share, Senator Bob Carey, a man who was no stranger to strangers to pressing on when you have scars and injuries, chose to, to make Barbara Burback one of the first people that he shared his news with. Now, I hope you're starting to see why I might be telling these stories relative to the story I first read to you. Because, because I think there are some helpful linkages between Bob and Barbara's story and the story we read in Luke chapter 2. On a vastly larger scale, I mean, this is something of what we experience going on in these stories. Um, it's hard enough, I know, to imagine a, a United States senator, uh, somebody that's so high and mighty and luminous, choosing to, to deign to, to share his heart uh, first with a brain-injured girl. Uh, it, it'd be almost like sort of imagining on a different uh, in a different frame, uh, Tim Cook from Apple, he, he, he's about to release a major product that's going to have global life-changing consequences. And so the first thing he does is call in the late-night cleaning crew and say to them, hey, gang, this is what I'm about to do. And I want you to be part of it. The great God of the universe, the ultimate intelligence and, and power of the universe shares the news that he is stepping down in a sense, in maybe a different sense than the political sense, that he's going to change lives globally, that he's got a massive new thing to introduce, a breakthrough into human history, and he chooses to share that news first, not with the powerful Caesar, not with the famous Herod, not with the influential Sanhedrin, the religious authorities of that day. He chooses to share the news first with a bunch of shepherds working the late night shift in the Middle East version of the Nebraska fields. That's what's really going on here. Question is, why does he do that? Why did he choose those shepherds? Why'd they get the inside track? 
And what does that possibly have to say to you and me? What could it teach you and me about God, about the way God moves, and about our part in the larger story of his providence? So I think the answer is profoundly simple, uh, or maybe simply profound, any way you might take that. I think that God shared the good news of Christmas with these people first because the good news is that God is a shepherd. That God has a shepherd's heart. And so he naturally goes to the ones who also have that heart. And and he chooses to elevate these people, not taken seriously enough in his society perhaps, to say that the heart of a shepherd matters to his purposes. Jesus puts it this way in one of his most famous teachings. You may have heard this teaching. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Doesn't he just do that? I remember the first day of of preschool for our eldest child. We were living in San Diego at the time, and the preschool was at our church, the one where I was the pastor. I was the new pastor. And we brought our our three-and-a-half-year-old to the preschool that day. I remember dropping him off in the classroom, and then I walked out of the building and went to another building where my office was, and then I realized, ah, forgot to check him in, forgot to do the paperwork. Walked back down into the classroom uh, and uh, signed the name uh, as I was supposed to do it, and I looked around to see just how he was doing, and I looked here, and I looked there, and I looked there, and Rush is not in the classroom. And I say to the teacher, where's Rush? Where's my son Rush? Uh, and she says, oh, he's, he's, uh, he's just, uh, and then panic on her face. Not good to lose the boss's son on the first day of preschool. <laughs> not good to lose anybody's kid. I like to think they'd have the same level of, of response that had been anybody's kid. And, and there ensues this incredible flush of activity as everybody on the staff is now a shepherd in the deeper sense. They are looking for the lost sheep. They eventually find him. He's gone out of the building. He's walked around the corner. He's on the sidewalk. And he's watching these great, great big yellow construction vehicles repaving the parking lot. <laughs> he drives those vehicles today. That's what he does for a living. He does this kind of thing. Um, But uh, this is the passion with which shepherds live, Jesus says. The, The good shepherd, anyway. There's lots of other kinds of shepherds. He talks about them in some of his other teachings. But he says the good shepherd cares so much for every single one of his flock That when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, says Jesus, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He slings it around his shoulders and holds on to the the legs so that that little one's not getting away again. He's going to make sure this one gets safely home. And he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. You know, he just wants other people to, to, to enter into the joy of finding that which was lost. Then later on, when summing up why he had come to this world, why Jesus had made the decision to leave the glories and splendors and comforts and privileges of a sphere of life that we can barely imagine except in poetic terms, why he would do that to enter all the way down 
and live in a peasant's life, why he would do that, Jesus sums it all up by saying this, for the Son of Man, that was his preferred term for himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. God has a shepherd's heart. And it pounds hard for the lost. The question I want to ask you today is, do you have a shepherd's heart? Do you live your life with a shepherd's heart? Are you somebody likely to hear angels' voices, to be somebody that God would be inclined to speak to, to, would be inclined to provide further direction to, to be, inc- to, to, to be inclined to, to work with? Are you somebody like that because you have a heart for the lost, the least, the last, for the people who especially need to be found? Do you have a shepherd's heart? Or, or and, or, are you in need of a shepherd? yourself? Are you somebody for whom the message of Christmas is really especially good news this year because you're feeling pretty lost? Or you are and maybe haven't faced it? One afternoon many years ago, um, a pastor by the name of Robert Fulgham was uh, working away in his uh, study. He was, uh, in addition to being a pastor, he was an author. He was working on a book. And, um, and he heard the neighborhood children outside of his, in his property. And he looked out the window and he saw they were playing a game of hide and seek. And, uh, and that activated the shepherd's heart in him in a way. And he, and he began to write about it. And he records this in his famous book. You've probably heard of this one. All I ever really needed to know, needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And uh, he says this, and I want to share it with you. Did you have a kid in your neighborhood who always hid so good nobody could find him? <laughs> a lot of us laugh because, yeah, we did. We did too, says Fulgham. After a while, we would give up on him and go off, leaving him to rot wherever he was. Sooner or later, he'd show up all mad because we didn't keep on looking for him and we would get mad because he wasn't playing the game the way it was supposed to be played. No matter what, though, the next time we played, he would hide too good again. He's probably out there somewhere still hidden for all I know, says Fulgham. As I write this, the neighborhood game goes on. And there's a kid under a pile of leaves just under my window. And he's been there a long time now. And everybody has pretty much been found. And they're about to give up on him over at the base. So I think about going out over there to the base and saying, hey, he's over there underneath the leaves. I think about setting the leaves on fire to chase them out. (laughs) But instead, I finally decide to just throw up the window sash and to yell, hey, kid, get found. Come on out.
My best friend in college was named Ira. And uh, Ira was a, uh, a Jewish kid from New Jersey. And he was, a, he was one of those kind of gadfly kind of kids. He just, you know, it's always just poking at you. We met freshman year, and, and I didn't really like him at first. But over time, you know, he just had this interesting personality. And we started to hang out, and we ended up rooming together for the, for the rest of the time I was in college. And Ira's one of these amazing guys. He just... Uh, he was always kidding me, but he was usually trying to poke at me in ways that would make me better. He was somebody that, um, that took me home, and I attended my very first Seder meal, my very first Passover in his Jewish family's home in New Jersey, and kind of learned about the symbolism of the Passover meal that, that came to transform from my understanding the beauty of what communion is really about, because it builds off the Passover meal. And, and Ira was the guy that convinced me to, to run for the head of the student government job at the school. He was the guy that, that, that stoked me with enough courage to finally ask that girl out that became my girlfriend for a couple of years. Ira played a big role in my life. In fact, he was the only guy from college that traveled all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast to attend uh, my wedding to Amy. And that meant so much to me. And that's why I could not understand it when he developed a rare blood cancer, why he never told me. He was a doctor. And he never, he never told a lot of people that he was so very, very sick. Robert Fulgham, in the same chapter of the story I've been reading to you, tells of a similar experience he had, a doctor friend of his, and this is what he says. Uh, my friend knew about dying. He didn't want to make his family and his friends suffer through that with him. So he just kept his secret, and he died. Everybody said how brave he was to bear his suffering in silence and not tell everybody and so on and so forth. But privately, honestly, his family and friends said how angry they were that he didn't need them, that he didn't trust their strength, that he hid too well. When getting found would have kept us in the game together. Hide and seek, grown-up style, writes Fulgham. Wanting to hide, needing to be sought, confused about being found. I don't want anybody to know. What will people think? I don't want to bother anybody. Do you know anybody like this? Have you ever been somebody like this? Are you now? I think that it's easier and easier to be somebody like this today. I think we live in a hiding culture in many ways. Americans are pretty quick to expose the foibles and flaws of public figures, but they are very concerned about keeping their own vulnerabilities under wraps. We will spend untold fortunes to conceal the fact that we are aging, and we do not like it. Uh, businesses will contort their balance sheets to hide their losses. I mean, just think about this old bankman freed thing and the wreckage that this is doing so many places. Behind our 
our social media appearances. There are so often within our families or our individual lives painful secrets, mentally ill loved ones, physical or sexual abuse, marital struggles, addictions, financial despair, criminal records, heartbreaking losses, and more. Our affluence, and I would suggest our busyness, has both allowed and forced us to a kind of isolation from one another that actually would be pretty unimaginable in earlier communities. Technology has given us fresh ways to hide. It's the new pile of leaves. Email allows us the illusion of contact with other people without the risk that face-to-face conversation would actually present that our deeper feelings might come out in real time and bring up some other kind of interaction with people. Twitter, online worship even, lets us chat without actually giving our real names. Amidst a society where so many people seem to be prosperous and put together, we hide lest our failures and our fears, our vices and our vanities, our losses and our liabilities, our our illnesses and our idiocies be seen, lest our humanity be found out. But here's the good news. Here's the very good news that angels proclaim. God loves real human beings. He doesn't love just the new and improved version. He loves real human beings the way they are. It's to real people that the good shepherd comes. He has favor upon people. He's for people. This is the news of Christmas. And this will be a sign to you, the angels say. You're going to find a baby who will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, a place where animals eat. And the message here is that God has come in the form of a helpless baby to show us he does not despise vulnerability. He identifies with it. He comes to live in a human body that breaks down, that feels pain, that suffers thirst, that gets tired. He comes to live that way in order to share our hungers and our sorrows and to show us, hey, God's present with us in our frailty. He can work with that. And through that even, God comes to offer the staff of his truth to prod us back under the path when we've gotten lost. He comes to offer us the hand of his grace to lift us out of the thickets that we get entangled into if we live long enough. God does these things. And he will guide on the homeward way He will wrap around his shoulders and hold on to and guide in the homeward way anyone willing to be found. So are you willing to be found? Will you hear the angels' voices proclaiming the good news of Christmas? That God has favor upon you. He loves us all. He's trying to bring every single one of us home and he knows when even one is missing he has a shepherd's heart 
I think that one of the signs that you have been found or being found or have some kind of encounter with Jesus going on in your life is that this will have an impact on you. It, it will start to give you a shepherd's heart too. Uh, your gratitude for God's seeking after you, his caring for you, your growing intimacy with God will make you more like him. You will just start to walk through the fields of life differently than you did before. You'll be seeking people who may be lost or who may be hiding. Uh, I was um, not preaching last Sunday. I, I'm, always, I'm committed to not being preaching every week so that you get good preaching now and then. And you got some great preaching last Sunday. Seriously, you got great preaching. And, and you'll have more of it in, in the season ahead, ahead of us. But it is the real reason I do, I do it. I love the chance to just talk with the congregation and get to know people and hear their stories. And I had numerous stories uh, shared with me while I was walking around. And, and there were just stories of uh, you know, people dealing with, with very serious illness, with, with death in their family, with, with betrayals in relationships, with uh, just a whole vast, uh, lots of good stuff too. Lots of good stories too. You know, it's not all pain in life. There's lots of joy and beauty in life. But, but what was so clear to me is whether the stories were joyful ones or the stories were heartbreaking ones, is how on the visage of the people, the face of the people, it was just so clear. It, they, there was a blessing in being found in being known for what's really going on. Welcome, known, and loved. They just valued that so much. And it made me think to myself, how many people pass through our spaces and don't have that experience of being welcome, known, and loved? Don't have the experience of being found and known? Um, so I hope you're doing that wherever you go. Uh, if you've heard the angel voices, if you've heard the news, the good news that God truly favors and has love for human beings and has come to share his life with them and all of the beauty and the pain that is life today, I pray you're just seeking people out. You're just not walking through life as a consumer. You're walking through life as a shepherd. I hope you're doing this. The Bible says that after the shepherds heard the angels, they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. I just hope that you'll be doing that. That by the way you live and the way you speak, you'll be sharing the good news of God's care for people. That by the way you listen to them and you love them, they'll be encountering the God who is for real people. And he will meet any of us where we are, <laughs> whatever condition we're in. And he'll help us on the homeward way. Ideally, the church of Jesus Christ is not a club. It's not an organization. Uh, ideally, the church of Jesus Christ is a movement it's a band of roving under-shepherds looking for people to express the heart of a seeking God for people. That's what I think Christ Church is at our best. We're a fellowship of found sheep who extend 
grace to other people. We have a seeking eye for that child in our family, for that kid at school, for that neighbor in our environment, for that person at work, for that church member maybe, who's gone into hiding. And we create by our own personal vulnerability and humility and by our very kindness and unusual care and by our gentle invitations and our persevering patience, an environment that says to other people what the angel said to those watching over their flocks by night. Do you remember the start of the message? It was this. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, everybody, not just the put-together ones, not the perfect ones, but for, for everyone, for the U.S. senator and the brain-injured girl, for everybody, for in the coming of the Christ child, God is saying, as Fulgham would observe, Ali, Ali, oxen free. Come out of hiding. Come home. Come on home. Get found, kid. Can you hear the angels' voices? They're saying that in Jesus Christ, God has come to find us all and to make us his under-shepherds. My last question for you is between now and the next time we meet, who will be that lamb who will be that one precious life that in the name of Jesus Christ you help to find? Please pray with me. Lord, thank you that you have this heart for us. That this is not make-believe. You've proven this heart at Christmas, and at the cross. And you have shown that heart through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your church at its best, through the centuries. Give us that heart. Send us out with that heart to be your hands of blessing for those we meet this Christmas. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.